The Pace Line is produced by The Cycling Independent, the only cycling media completely free of commercial influence. We are community-supported and dedicated to the whole of cycling. As our tagline says, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, Patria Vandermark. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. How goes it, Patria? You look cold. Everything's great here. It's cold here. <laughs> our temperatures our temperatures have dropped, uh, and I, I took a day off this weekend, which I believe is the first day I've had off since January 2nd. Because it's been so busy Um, and uh, went out to Western Mass for some great fat bike riding. Wow. Cool. Where where in Western Mass? It felt good. It was um, not too far from the Shelburne Falls area. uh Interestingly, there's no snow at all in Shelburne Falls. And then it's about a 10 minute drive from there. You gain some altitude and there's a whole bunch of snow. Right. Because Shelburne Falls is right where the... Berkshire start rising. Yeah. Right, right. And you can really feel that. You go from fairly low, you see that their water, it's frozen. It looks frozen. I couldn't tell how much, how thick the ice is there on the water that runs through town. And then, yeah, go up just a little bit. And all of a sudden, there's a fair amount of snow. Yeah. And I was trying something. This is something I've learned this year is following the snowmobile trails Uh and following the snowmobile clubs to see what they're up to where they say the trails are good where they've been riding so if they've been riding naturally unless it's off limits to cyclists it's a great place for bike riding so we tried to find some of these trails which were marked green on the map and it looks like mean green meaning hey these are good to ride and it didn't look like a snowmobile had been through there in the last two weeks at least so I don't know why the why the trail said green, but it didn't matter. It was it was really crunchy uh, and wonderful for for fat bikes. Um, so that, that worked out OK. Like if I could see where the conditions wouldn't be ideal for a snowmobile. And and that's it's fine for a fat bike. And there were some downed limbs and it's some trees and things to pick around and go around, which, again, fine for bikes wouldn't be so ideal for snowmobile trails. But it's fun to see the parallels between the fat bike world and cycling world in general and the snowmobile clubs. Hmm. So, so it's it's been an interesting eye opening. Hey, snowmobilers get together in packs like cyclists get together in packs and they go ride and 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 they have trail maps and there's dues to clubs and they maintain trails and all sorts of good stuff huh very cool yeah yeah i was just you know when you don't have snow you just start to get desperate and you go find it It's about a two-hour <laughs> drive from home and <laughs> so that worked well and then i was just checking the forecast a few moments ago and it looks like we might actually get snow in boston this week so I'm, I'm crossing my fingers. I can see the grin. <laughs> I, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, I make, I'm making big plans for this week. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, got my first, you know, really kind of uh, less than stellar day uh, on the bike yesterday. It was it was in the 40s and uh, damp uh, on my way back to my car. It was actually raining. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, so it was a, a day of, you know, less than optimal conditions. And I have been kind of avoiding those for the most part. Uh, but it was nice rode by myself, uh, <laughs> had to clear a path around a couple of fallen trees at one point. Um, so I had both my saws out and my clippers, you know, clearing a little work around, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, we really need a picture of you at work. So everyone can get a sense of your tools and what you're doing out there. <laughs> I I can post one of a buddy of mine holding both my saws and looking like um, a crazed ninja. Um, <laughs> nice. I think we all want to see that. <laughs> okay. I can, I can do that. All righty. Well, what do you got for us this week in your poll? 
Well, since we're in winter and people are obviously preparing for spring, obviously that's one of the reasons why we've been so busy at the bike shops. If this is a good time to be thinking about bike fit Mm. and getting getting things to feel good for your spring riding. If you have a perfect fit on your road bike and you've moved this fit over to your gravel bike, this is a good time to review your gravel bike fit. Maybe this is the time to optimize it for your gravel riding. I hear over and over again from mountain bikers that fit doesn't matter. I'm sure you hear this often in your circles. Mm. Ah, Yes, (laughs) that's a yes. It's less common to get fit on a mountain bike. But I also hear over and over again that once someone has a dialed mountain bike fit, how much better the bike feels, how much faster that person feels on it. And how much easier it is to ride the bike confidently. Mm. So I'm, I'm definitely saying that having a good fit on every one of your bikes is worth it. It's, it's a really good idea to have a professional eye on you and, and your bikes. Where it comes to fit and knowing whether or not you need to get a good fit on your bike, start with pain or discomfort. This is, this is the obvious However, it's not that obvious to most people. I've worked with numerous people who believe that pain goes hand in hand with riding a bike. (laughs) Right, right. Right? If I'm on a bike, I'm supposed to be in pain. It's like, wait, 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 wait. (laughs) Exactly. I find this out a lot of times at the end of a sale process because I sell custom bikes and every bike I sell is fit and, and the frame is built to order for each person. So the fit is done prior to a person picking up the bike, they get their new bike and say, oh my goodness, this is the first time I've been comfortable ever. Mm. And this is the first time I've ridden without pain ever. So I hear these things on the end of, of this process where they didn't even think to tell me about pain because, and I ask too, I ask these questions specifically, but they just thought that that was part and parcel with either their body or how a bike should feel. So you may not be aware that the feeling of pressure or any level of discomfort or numbness is almost all fit related. And this all can usually be adjusted out of your bike. Now, at this point in our lives, most people are also managing old sports injuries or age related pain, such as arthritis. You are in the vast majority of people if you have some level of pain. And most professional fitters have seen all of this pain or some variation and will have ways of mitigating or completely removing the pain that you might be feeling. Let's start with hand numbness. If your hands go numb, your reach to the handlebars may be too long. Your handlebars might not be the right width or rotated at the right angle. Or you could be putting too much pressure on your hands, meaning the bars might need to be higher. And at times, the bars might need to be lower. That's counterintuitive, but sometimes a slightly more aggressive fit is more appropriate for someone. Mm. There are a variety of handlebar shapes now. As you've probably seen handlebars which with a really large flare. These mm-hmm. are the, the really hugely flared bars, like the salsa cowbell. Um, and there are some that are much more aggressive, aggressively flared than that are intended for gravel riders who are descending at fast paces on rough terrain and they want to be in their drops for control. So these handlebars are rarely employed successfully on a road bike or in a typical fit. I also feel like a lot of people ran to get flared handlebars when they were new because they're different and new and so it's worth trying. And a lot of people just like to try the newest thing that's out. I don't see that many more many people now using flared handlebars. I, I feel like the, that flare turns your hands in at the hoods. That generally isn't as comfortable for a lot of people. So uh, so those that's not necessarily the place to go if you feel like you need a different handlebar shape. But handlebars have a flat top. Handlebars have round tops. You might have a preference of one versus the other. If you have hand hand pressure points. That flat top could help. Most people have have found success with compact handlebars uh, with a modest four to six degree flare at the drops. The compact refers to how far your hands drop from the tops of the bars to the the drops. 
Um, that's typically about 125 millimeters of, of distance. It's a nice compact. Older handlebars tended to have a further drop, which would be pretty aggressive for most people in the drops. And you might not be a rider who uses the drops. You know, I don't feel like I know that many people who really employ their position in the drops much. They like to have it there for them, but it's not as important as being really comfortable on the hoods. Modern levers are more ergonomic than ever. The Shimano GRX levers are, I would say, the best example of ergonomics for smaller hands and for those using the hydraulic hydraulic brakes because the hydraulics has tended to make the hoods bigger and the levers just larger. Mm-hmm. So especially people with small hands can benefit from the shape of those levers, but I think everyone can benefit from them. So if you're having pain or issues feeling like the, the levers are just really large for you, the GRX levers are a good way place to look. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have issues with your hands feeling like too vibrated, again, some of the numbness, carbon handlebars can also be re- employed to reduce some of the road vibration. However, I recommend carbon bars last on the list. There's a lot of other things to try first, mostly because if you drop your bike, given a gravel bike situation, you are probably going to crash your bike every now and again. It's going to be handled roughly. So you drop your bike. If you've got a carbon bar, you really need to change the bar. It's expensive. And changing a road bar is not trivial, like, say, changing a mountain bike handlebar. It's just something you really don't want to have to do frequently or i mean i wouldn't say never because aluminum bars need to be changed as well for corrosion purposes um but that is something where people who have hand pain have found some comfort with with carbon bars you can also try bar tape my favorite bar tape at this point is the silka nastro fiori an even thicker cushier tape is their cushino tape meaning cushion pillowy (laughs) It's it it really helps take away some of that vibration with the way they've made their tape. I've also found their tape to be very, very durable. Mm-hmm. And that's not a bad thing either. That touch point, your hands on the bars is almost the most important thing on your bike. Aside from saddle, touch points are important because your hands are always there and you want your hands to be comfortable. You don't want to be moving around. You want to be able to rest your hands in the hoods just comfortably. You want that to be the natural place for them to go. In fact, this is something you can do when you're riding. Try to distract yourself by either talking to a friend or just letting your mind wander and see what happens with your hands. Are your hands on the hoods of your lovers or have they choked back? Do you find that you end up holding your bars further back from the hoods? If you're if if you're naturally just gravitating to not having your hands on the hoods, that means your reach is too long. Mm-hmm. That indicates to you that you should get a fit. You probably need to bring your handlebars in and you likely need to bring them up a little bit as well. And unfortunately, something that happens to all of us is aging. As we age, unless we've taken our cycling to a new level where we're riding a lot more than we did in the past, or if you're doing more yoga or more stretching than you did in the past, chances are your fit is going to change such that you need to be a little higher up and a little further in. Now, again, if you've been doing it the opposite, you've been getting more into cycling, you've been you've been stretching, you've been doing yoga, you've been paying attention to this, you've really increased your mileage, you may be looking for a more aggressive position. So that's something hopefully your frame will let you go in either direction mm-hmm. to accommodate how your body feels and what's what's comfortable for for you. Now let's go to your feet. Numbness in your feet. You know, there's lots of reasons for that. Assuming your shoes aren't too small, which is something to consider, especially this time of year if you're wearing thicker socks, your shoes may be too small. Your saddle could be too high. Your saddle could be the wrong shape for you. And the most likely scenario here is that you're using shoes with soft soles. <laughs> Contrary to what may seem intuitive, your feet are going to be more comfortable with a stiffer soled shoe, not a shoe that has flex in its sole. 
a lot of people feel like if they can walk comfortably in a shoe, then that is a comfortable shoe. It's also a lesser expensive shoe. So you might have been saving money or just saying, hey, I would like to be comfortable when I walk around in this shoe. However, you're much more likely to get hot spots in your shoes and your your toes are much more likely to go numb. Your whole foot is going to have a lot more support with an exceptionally stiff sole. <laughs> so hopefully you can get a stiff sole. You don't need to get the, the top of the line because now you've let you've dropped the weight of the shoe. That doesn't matter. It's not about the weight of the shoe. It's about the stiffness of the sole. But hopefully a carbon or a similarly stiff sole will be very helpful. You'll notice that a lot of people have been using mountain bike pedals on gravel bikes. Hopefully you're using mountain bike pedals on your gravel bike and have evolved away from road pedals. So this is also going to work great if you have that stiff sole because your foot will have all the support it needs, even with a two bolt mountain bike cleat. Other other pains. Do you get pinching between your shoulder blades? Is your lower back aching and sore at the end of a ride? Pay attention. Just just do a, a, a check. What What's hurting? What feels like it has pressure? And think, hey, maybe there's a way of getting rid of this. Is there a way to get rid of this? Investigate that. Mm-hmm. Now, finding a fitter is more challenging than ever with COVID concerns. Many people are very concerned about being inside within a couple of inches of someone else's face. This is just not a good situation to to have to do an in-person fitting. Uh, I'm sure a lot of shops have gotten creative. I've read a lot of articles about shops being creative about fittings. During the summer, we were doing fittings outside. Because you can do that in the summertime. Mm. Mm-hmm. With our n- newly negative temperatures, <laughs> we're not doing fittings outside. <laughs> that No one is interested in going outside for a fit. I think everyone is feeling more comfortable being inside with one person. But still, we all have to keep our distance from each other. So my shops work with Sarah Bresnik of Pe- Pedal Power Training Solutions. Sarah is a physical therapist and has a long history of cycling, professional mountain biking and coaching experience. We had worked with her in the stores fitting clients for years pre-COVID. And when COVID hit, she, like many people around here um, and her family, they moved to Vermont. They they went up to Vermont and and they were gone. So Sarah quickly pivoted to figure out how to do fittings remotely with with her clients. And and we have now been working remotely with her. It's very it's it's been a very interesting shift and it's working really well. Now we have video technology where almost every computer, every laptop has a nice video camera on it. And we just use Google Meeting in order to connect up. Mm -hmm. And then I can show her or whichever person is working with her. Any angle she needs to see of a person riding a bike. So Sarah can watch the person ride and then make recommendations as to the proper fit for the person. Measurements can be taken off of the video feed if necessary. And measurements, as you sometimes will see after a person's gotten a fit, they'll have pictures of their angles. And angles are important. However, on top of this, Fitting is a dynamic process. You can only fit a person watching that person ride a bike. It's very dynamic. What are the legs doing? What are the knees doing? Um, where, are your, where are your hands? What are your arms doing? All of this stuff. It's a full picture of what a person's doing. And you can do all of this via video feed. Something else that's very important with fitting is feedback from the rider. Mm-hmm. It's something Sarah does very effectively is listen to what the rider has to say and what the rider feels is right. Uh, What feels good to a person. Comfort is number one. And you as a rider know what feels good and you know what does not feel good. I've often seen fit systems where the system employs lasers and tells a person what is right without taking into account feedback from the rider. 
when that happens, there will be discomfort because lasers do not know how a person feels. So a, a nice combination of the right angles, the, the where your knees should be, that there is a proper angle for that. But then where the where the person feels comfortable, that's all of these things need to be incorporated into a fit. So having one person in the room, making adjustments to the fit bike, having a professional fitter on the video feed, suggesting changes, trying things out, seeing what looks good, seeing how the rider responds to that works exceptionally well. So this is how we've been able to work around the the COVID requirements. But we are also seeing what potential this gives us for the future to be able to reach riders who live far, far, far away from a bike shop, who live away from here who need to have a fit and need to be in front of a professional fitter. Well, you probably have the technology in your home with your computer to do all or your phone even to get the the video feed that a, a professional fitter needs. And you can do it right like that. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 cool. It's it's really cool. You know, while COVID hasn't been good, it definitely has been allowing us and every business to get creative. And to do things better and mm-hmm. more efficiently, all of these things are have been really important. I, I didn't even mention saddle. Saddle is really important, <laughs> and I, uh, way too many people are riding the wrong saddle. The sto- stock saddle that came on your bike probably doesn't fit well. Well, I've seen very few stock saddles that fit right the first time. Some people aren't that particular, but many people are particular. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are riding shorter because the saddle is uncomfortable. So I would suggest asking your bike shop to demo saddles. And there's there is some saddle fit systems where you can like sit on this gel thing. Have you seen that? Oh yeah. Where the bike shop will let you sit down on this gel thing and then they'll suggest a saddle. I've I've seen too many times where a person comes in with the saddle and they say, This is what my bike shop has told me to ride, and I hate it. <laughs> So it's yes, you get the measurements right and you can take a best guess. And when I work with somebody, I'll give them my best guess. But then I'll also give them a long list of other saddles to try. And we're often surprised like, oh, hey, Mm -hmm. this one ended up working well. And maybe it needs to be angled just a little bit this way or that. It's just the smallest, smallest little changes of how that saddle is is angled will make a big difference. Um, And that's another thing while we're talking about saddles if your saddle is angled more than three degrees up or down you're probably riding the wrong saddle (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it's probably if it's angled down it's probably putting too much pressure on your hands Mm -hmm. also because now you're falling into the into your hoods and your hands have to hold you up because your saddle isn't it's very anatomy driven and that like everything on a bike it's very specific to you there is no to use so (laughs) therefore finding the right saddle, finding the right hood, the right tape, all those things are very specific to you. So anything you ask your bike shop for is specific to you. There's no right or wrong because you should be the first time they've ever seen someone who is you who needs to fit really well and feel good on your bike in the way that you need to be accommodated. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I actually have one of those specialized assometers, the memory foam. Uh, you sit oh, yeah. down. How does that work for you? You know, here's the thing about it. It's really useful for one answer. The moment somebody tries to use that to determine exactly what saddle someone should be on, it's being overused. What it does is it tells you how broad your sit bones are and so how wide a saddle you should be on. It doesn't say mm-hmm. anything helpful about the shape or length of the saddle or whether it needs yeah. a cutout. But Helping someone identify, oh, you shouldn't be on a saddle that's 130 or 135 millimeters wide. You should be on a 143, 145, or like a lot of women, a 150 or 155. Mm -hmm. Getting that piece nailed so that you understand, uh, oh, I've got a great big ass. Uh, I'm just talking about myself here, okay? Uh, (laughs) Right, you are. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) um, I... I have one. I am not one. Let's clarify that. Um, (laughs) But like, you know, yeah, for me, um, with the specialized saddles, the 143, their medium width is really good. I I am, um, let's say, substantive enough in my caboose 
that I can ride the women's saddles, the 155s, and I don't, mm-hmm. I don't really have a problem with that. Uh, but you put me on something really skinny, like a physique Arione, uh, which yep. is only 130. And um, I'm going to end up four or five kinds of numb. It's, it's yep. just no good for me at all. Um, one of the other things you, you were touching on uh, regarding shoes. I, I've noticed that with gravel riding, I get off more than I do with a mountain bike. And I, you know, I'm crossing streams and doing all sorts of stuff that I may not typically be doing uh, on a mountain bike ride. And so a little flex in the sole is good. I've certainly found that uh, I've reviewed some shoes where the sole was just unforgivably stiff, didn't move at all. And those shoes are even uncomfortable to ride in. Forget walking in them. Uh, So I would encourage people as they're looking at shoes. Sure. You don't want something that's too, too soft because you won't have adequate support. But uh, to go with the stiffest sole that you run across can be equally problematic. Uh, Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I've found that I definitely there's a there's a midpoint in there where having some flex is really, uh, nice for me. I like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the one thing I'm, I'm interested to discuss this with you deeper drop bars. I've always felt have been misunderstood at least since like the 1980s when they were still in vogue. Mm-hmm. Um, my perspective on them was always that. And as a fitter, when I was doing that, I would start with somebody in the drops because that's your most extreme position. That's your limit. Somebody's not ever going to be more bent over than they are when they're in the drops. So the thing that I would look at is, you know, how high does the bar have to be for you to be comfortable in the drops? That was my starting point. And with a deep drop bar, the upshot was that being on the tops, you were sitting up higher than normal. So often people get it backward and they're placing the, the, the bar top um, uh, at the same height as their old bar. They're not doing that fit differently. So then when they go to bend over and get down in the drops, suddenly they look like an Olympic pursuit, pursuiter. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, no, you got it all wrong. Raise the bar so that your drops are still in the same position. And then that means when you're climbing, you're going to be even more comfortable because you're going to be sitting more upright. Um, and it, yeah, it bugs me that I don't ever hear anybody talking about it that way, but I'm just one person. What's your perspective? Well, I think, I, I think, uh, the drops probably were more important in the past. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you would focus on the drops. Most people use the drops for a third hand position and less less for aggressive racing criteriums those sorts of applications i I think it has a lot to do with who you're talking about Mm -hmm. most of the people that i work with aren't racing they are performance riders who are interested in doing well in a group ride and mixing it up at the town line that sort of thing who are rarely in the drops. So it is like the the position that, and, and also now with compact bars, it's not so far away, mm-hmm. but that hood position is really important mm-hmm. to have that as the primary. So we start with the hood position being perfect and then making sure the drops feels good. Uh, and typically if you're looking at comfort, the drops aren't too far away. The compact bars, again, the drops mm-hmm. aren't too far away. And then it has a lot to do with the shape. Like, wh- are the drops coming back far enough? Like mm-hmm. those bar ends, a lot of people really want those to be there. A lot of bars are too short now. Um, and, and, and riders who are used to the older style bars really enjoyed having having a bar there that they could hang on to. Yeah. Again, that's it's more for that, that position. Yeah. That one always amazed me because I felt like, you know, if your hands are at the very end of the drop, you know, where the handlebar plugs are, well, then the reach is probably too long. Um, That was, I mean, certainly when I was being trained as a fitter, that was one of the things we were looking for in terms of if somebody, when when they bent over and put their hands on the drop, if it wasn't up in the hook where they could reach the brake lever, 
I was immediately shortening that stem. Um, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not saying that people are going to that place because they have to, because, but because they enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and like, if there's just so many different places on the bar where people want to have their hands at some point. So it's not the, I'm there because I can't possibly go to the hoods. And of course, the way I think is, is more, well, we're doing this on a bike that hasn't been built yet. The frame doesn't mm-hmm. exist. We get to choose the right size stem and the right size frame. So where in space does this handlebar sit? How is it rotated? Where are your hands on it? And who cares what's going on with the frame? So there's none of that's being considered. It's just where should your hands be? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And where do you want to spend your time? And it's almost always the hoods. And you really should want to be in the hoods 90% of the time. And that's that's different now than it used to be. The hoods didn't used to be comfortable. They were were these little hooky things. Yeah. And then the handlebars were rotated way down. So if you if you rested your hands on the hoods for any period of time, your hands would get really just they'd ache. I don't know. I never rode a bike with the older style hoods because I wasn't into cycling (laughs) back then. I was I was lucky. My first group set was a Campagnolo Centaur. Mm-hmm. 10 speed group set. So I, I was spoiled to start in that place, <laughs> but my hands were always comfortable and I always rode in the hood. So that's, that's certainly my you know, bias going in is yeah, your, your hands should be a hundred percent comfortable on the hoods. If you ride a hundred miles in the hoods and you don't need to change your hands. Great. Like that's, you shouldn't have to, mm-hmm. maybe you want to, because you want to just change things up, but you shouldn't have to. Yeah. Yeah. I- a question for you. I know that there are various philosophies on this. Um, I've certainly run across a lot of fitters uh, who mm-hmm. think that basically your your saddle height and upper body angle should be consistent between all of your different bikes. The, the only thing that moves a little bit is your hands, depending on whether it's a flat bar or whatever. My my feeling based on all my road riding and gravel riding is that uh when i move from a road bike to a gravel bike i want to be seated higher i i want my mm-hmm. my upper body position to be higher uh reduce that angle some um right. get a little more weight on the rear wheel um exactly. you know part of that is they tend to be long days um if you're bent over a whole lot hitting a lot of rough stuff that tends to be rougher uh on your shoulders um, and then considering gravel bike to mountain bike, I want to be seated even more upright on the mountain bike. Uh, but I've got, I've got a couple of different friends whose coaches were adamant that as they moved between their various bikes, um, they wanted the saddle fore aft and upper body position and saddle height to be absolutely consistent between each bike. And it just doesn't make any sense to me. I'm right there with you. I, I don't, I don't, I don't even know how you do that when it comes to a mountain bike and stay comfortable. A mountain bike, <laughs> really a, a usual mountain bike position is about a zero mm-hmm. difference between saddle height and the handlebar height. Like that's, that's very common. And yeah, you want to sit up a little higher. Uh, you're, you're working with a different bar, but yeah, saddle height. Sure. Keep the saddle height the same. That makes sense. So your, your knee angle and all that is the same, um, that, that, that makes sense. But yeah, how, how your upper body interacts with your bike, definitely in and up for the gravel, but in and up more with a mountain bike. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay. Now one other question for you, since you're building custom bikes or, or because you're working with seven and they're yeah. building custom bikes, but you're servicing people who are going to be on a custom bike. Right. You have the opportunity in advance to determine how many spacers go under the stem and if there are any above the stem. Uh, We're long gone from the days of the quill stem where in the winter you'd raise it to the minimum insertion height. And then by (laughs) July, it was back down as far down as it would go. Um, I like building bikes so that there's uh, usually two centimeters of spacer below the stem and one more centimeter above it so that I've got room to move that stem up and down. 
if I have, if like, if I have a back spasm and I get stiff, I want to raise that bar until that's all worked out. I'm not going to stop riding. So how do you approach that? Well, that's how we look at it. Absolutely. And seven designs frames to be good for the future, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which means you start in a neutral position. And that allows you to bring the handlebars up and in in the future or out and lower if you get more nimble and fit, depending on where you're at. And these are all the questions they ask of us to provide to them. The age of the rider, experience riding, all these things go into that that equation as to where does the stem start. Many people come with an aesthetic preference to have a stem at an 84 degree angle, which might be what you're describing, a flat stem. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So the stem will be either flat or slightly raised, and that would be a 96, 97 degree stem if it's slightly raised. So if it's in the flat angle, which is what you're describing, we typically put two spacers under the stem and one over, mm-hmm. just like you're describing. Yeah. If you flip the stem up, if it's a 100, 110 centimeter or millimeter stem, you flip it up and you move it up a spacer, that gives you three, three and a half centimeters of mm-hmm. rise on the handlebar that you can go up. And then if you have two spacers under, you can certainly drop that stem down two centimeters. That's a lot of room to move where you haven't negatively affected the handling of the bike. Mm-hmm. That's generally where we would start. If the stem is starting in the slightly angled up position, we typically do a centimeter or one and a half centimeters of spacers under the stem and one over. Mm-hmm. For some people, we'll start with one and a half centimeters over. I mean, you got to be careful. GCN has a very specific requirement. I'm talking about the Global Cycling Network mm-hmm. now <laughs> as to what's cool and what's not. Oh, God, you yeah. can have too many spacers. Not cool. But there's a yeah, there's that's what's nice when you start with with custom. You always have a nicely angled stem that is properly of a proper length for the size of the frame that's being ordered. So the rider has the ability to sit over the two wheels in a balanced way that not i mean yes it looks good but more importantly the bike handles well it rides well and the person can adjust it as they move into the future with this bike without having to say okay my bike's maxed out now i need to either do something crazy with the stem have a really tippy upright stem or or sell the bike because that's that's not where we're at with Mm -hmm. with bikes we we want someone to be able to ride this bike 20 30 years and in the future without thinking about it just making small tweaks as the body changes very cool wow um well it's nice to know that i'm not you know (laughs) an oddball relative to a lot of this stuff um yeah no not Uh, at all all. yeah um very cool Alrighty, we're gonna take a break and we'll be back in just a minute the pace line is brought to you by the cycling independent We are the only online cycling publication that's entirely reader-supported with absolutely no advertiser, sponsor, or investor commitments influencing our editorial. We don't have a sales team or middle management. It's just the three founders and a collection of talented and committed contributors who independently produce our content. To maintain our commitment to honest, reader-focused editorial with the best writers in the business, we need your help. Every dollar that comes in goes directly toward creating the content you see. A subscription is cheap, easy, and it goes a heck of a long way. Just go to cyclingindependent.com, click on support TCI, and choose your level. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back with the Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Time for my poll. So we've talked legal versus illegal trails in the past, but I... It's always been something that we mentioned, you know, kind of off to the side in the course of discussing a different subject. And so I figured, well, maybe this deserves a poll of its own. That said, before I go any further, (laughs) I want to clarify that the issue of riding terrain that isn't legal for cyclists really isn't straightforward, which is why I'm doing a whole poll on it. There are a number of arguments for and against riding illegal terrain, and they are not created equal. Um, Okay, the why not is pretty straightforward. Don't break rules, right? Um, Also, if you Strava and want to be involved with a NICA team, like as a coach or one of the other uh, adult 
support people. You can't be riding illegal trails. Uh, that's something that NICA really frowns on. That's not how they want to be teaching kids uh, about cycling. And so it's really important that uh, everyone involved with a team is on board with that uh, and setting a good example. So yeah, that's really good to know. Yeah. Right. And I, I get that, but you know, I've known, I've known some coaches who are like, Oh, I really want to turn off down that. And I can't, yeah. um, <laughs> that, you know, ultimately that may play, uh, to some degree in some folks staying involved. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, yeah, I get it. Sure. So what I'm, you know, and I'm not going to advocate that people should ride illegal trails, but I I'll illustrate some of the thinking. Um, these aren't in any sort of hierarchy, though I'll say that the most obvious reason is the trails are usually a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> I can't speak for many places, but I can say that uh, here locally in Annadale and then down in the Santa Cruz area, the SoCal Demo Forest, um, the illegal trails are often the best trails within that network because they were built by mountain bikers. Um, and by best, I mean the most interesting terrain. They're frequently the flowiest, you know, using existing uh, terrain features uh, so that you're you're getting interesting turns and, you know, opportunities to hit little rises and pump the bike. Um, it, you know, it's substantially different than riding just an old school game trail. Um, there's not really, yeah, there's not really a valid argument for riding them. But I think it's a primary motivation. One can, however, make the argument that by riding on illegal trails within a busy park, especially on heavy use days like the weekend, uh, riders are helping spread the population around the park more. That decreases potential user conflicts. It decreases trail wear on those trails. um, And it gives everyone present a greater perception of solitude, which is usually something that most everybody going into wild spaces wants. They want to get away from everything. And so spreading people around a, a park is uh, a pretty useful thing. A corollary to this is that most cyclists ride to like, uh, like to ride fast or at least at a pace that feels fun. That can vary. Fun may be 12 miles per hour or it may be 20 miles per hour. It's not uncommon in my experience for hikers to hate anything that moves faster than they are. <laughs> it's like yep. if you're faster than them you're wrong um it, and it could feel scary yeah 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 because yeah, yeah. you're passing uh, trails are narrow you're passing in depending small on the proximity. trail sure yeah depending on the trail um you know i've also encountered equestrians who would scream at me if i'm not stopped dead and averting my eyes from their horse i've come up on horses that made skittish cats look extroverted so <laughs> Being on an illegal trail where there are no horses definitely makes that experience better. I don't, I don't want to upset anybody. You know, I don't want to disturb their good time, uh, but I want to have my flavor of fun. It's also worth pointing out that very often the illegal trails are better built from a sustainability standpoint and better maintained than the legal ones. That is absolutely the case in Annadale. Um, Can I just say that's the very definition of counterintuitive? Uh, Here's the thing. In the past, park management at Annadale was unfathomably hostile to trail maintenance in the park and in general, mountain bikers probably would have uh, if they could have changed the rules to eliminate mountain biking. I think they would have. That's finally changing. There's new leadership in the park and there are new conversations started not only about how to maintain the existing trails. But how to start grandfathering in a bunch of the illegal ones to make them a legitimate part of the network uh, and therefore something that could be maintained. What's so funny is with the illegal trails, there's this crazy inverse situation where because the trail was built on the lowdown, maintaining it is a similarly concealed effort. (laughs) So because the maintenance will have to be done quietly and infrequently making the trail as resistant to erosion and other forms of damage as possible is really necessary precisely because maintenance will be infrequent. Um, I also know riders who do it as a show of either defiance or civil disobedience to say, well, you won't work with us. So I'm going to do this there. Uh, 
And, you know, I, I get it. There are a lot of parks where uh, rangers are just really pretty hostile to the presence of cyclists. Um, and by taking that attitude, it's like fly meat soup. You're going to have to deal with me now. Um, I don't I don't like adversarial uh, approaches. I really don't like that. Um, but I think as a as a small slice of the mountain bike population, it's probably not bad to have a few people out there who are like, you know, screw you guys. Um, now, all of what I've shared concerns Parkland and here in California, there is also, you know, plenty of privately owned land with trails, logging roads, fire roads running through in my community. Riding that stuff is referred to as poaching. Um, that sort of riding is by and large considered in a very different way and far more likely even within our community to be frowned upon. I've got friends who will do rides through private land where they think the consequences of getting caught are high enough that they won't even take me lest they feel responsible for my well-being should something go wrong. Uh, I have a friend in the Santa Cruz area who was held at gunpoint by a landowner uh, because he was trespassing on the land. Uh, when the cops got there, they admonished the landowner for being so difficult. Like, you just don't don't pull guns on people. Can you do that? Can you just not pull guns on people? Um, you know, even though, yes, they shouldn't have been out there. It's like there are other ways to settle this. But I mean, that is a reality. Some people get really, really irate about this. Um, and, you know, honestly, I know of places where the difference between legal and illegal can be as simply as crossing a, que- a creek 12 feet upstream. You cross down a little lower, it's easier to get across. The water's a little lower. The transition and out is a little easier. But coming out the other side, you're on private property. Whereas mm-hmm. if you come out just a little bit further where it's harder to step up the bank, you're, you're on perfectly legal land. And so that stuff can be, again, sort of counterintuitive. But all that is very different from what my experience was when I was living in Western Massachusetts. There, all of the trails that I rode that weren't in parks were on private land. And the trails dated back generations. I have no idea who owned the land and, you know, never met anybody who was who said they were an owner, owner, never said boo. Um, But to do that here in California, nope, nope, uh uh-uh. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's a real cultural difference mm-hmm. between the two places, clearly. Yeah. yeah. So share a little bit more of, of your experience with this, where you are. Well, here it's it, it's interesting is when you talk about illegal trails, I don't feel like that's terminology we use. Mm-hmm. The same with poaching. Uh, those aren't words in our lexicon. It's it's more about private versus not private property and mm-hmm. the importance of staying on either allowed private property where there's there are signs on the trails if there's no sign that says you can't go as a bike then it's understood that you are allowed to be on them if there's a sign that has basically that cross through a bike then you may not go on that land and you could you could certainly get in trouble for that and it's part of the community and culture here that if you go on those trails that's terrible because you can ruin it for everyone so that's that's where we come from here in the everyone should be respectful. And there's there's enough trails here that you can certainly stay on the trails that are acceptable to bikes and, and that it's fine. There's an easement and the property owner is OK with a bike being there uh, that that you you can ride those trails. And it's, of, of course, unfortunate when a trail becomes private when you've enjoyed riding it Mm -hmm. but at the same time it's the it's the trying to be as respectful as possible to keep the 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 rights that we have and and i i feel it here that if if you're pushing on that that the chances of whole sections of land just being close to bikes can happen which we all saw happen with the um, kingdom trails 
yeah. which is in I was Burke, just thinking Vermont. About that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where my understanding, I don't want to spread rumors, but my understanding of the situation was that some cyclists had had told some horseback riders to like get off the land and get out of their way or something like that. And those horseback riders happened to be property owners. And that was like the straw that broke that camel's back. Uh, it sounds like there were probably some other confrontations and, and difficult situations. So whole parcels of property are now off limits to cyclists that were are very much in the middle of this amazing mountain biking land that has been open to mountain bikers. And then so with those parcels closed, it just affects the dynamic very much of that area. And it's it's really important to the to the economic success of that area, too. Yeah. yeah. So and that's one of the things that I hear when you're talking about riding illegal trails there. It sounds like and correct me if I'm wrong, that it's 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 not necessarily as uh, it's, it's more about the land people who are there or the, the the rangers who don't like cyclists. But it sounds like now that they're trying to get illegal trails to become legal, that it's it's not necessarily a flagrantly, flagrantly wrong thing. It's the there's an opportunity and it's people are seeing that there's an opportunity there. It, am I am I reading that correctly? Um, I, w- I would pitch it this way. So, you know, the. The illegal trails were were exactly that. They shouldn't have been built. You know, it was not okay. Um, but we're finally at a point where the rangers are beginning to appreciate that uh, the parks are in high enough use that having more trails to decrease user conflict is a useful thing. Um, and having trails that are sustainable without uh, a lot of maintenance is also a, a useful thing. And so they're beginning to look at it a little bit differently. But fundamentally, one of the real problems here started with mountain biking back in the 1980s in that uh, people were just riding stuff. They were just riding trails and they started upsetting the other users because they were tearing by them. Um, and we didn't get organized on advocacy efforts really until at long after we'd started losing major parcels of land. The vast majority of all single track in Marin County, illegal for mountain bikes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, and that incredible. comes from that, that historic. Yeah. Headbutting. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, it's been a, a situation where we haven't been good advocates uh, for our place at the table. And here in California, there's a new organization I was working with last year, CAMTB, which is the first statewide umbrella organization pulling together all the regional uh, advocacy organizations. Um, And so it's taking the approach of lobbying at the state level to try to change uh, what's allowed uh, and what's possible, um, you know, in Sacramento, as opposed to only working with, uh, local authorities and, you know, they're, they're still a very new organization. They're just over a year old, uh, and they've got a lot of work ahead of them, but they're making friends in a lot of really good places. So I'm, I'm excited to see where things go for them. That sounds like there's a lot of potential there. Yeah. Now, playing devil's ad- advocate, <laughs> if everyone were to stay off the illegal trails and cyclists say, hey, OK, we get it. We need to stay off these trails, though. It's important for us to be there and being on all the legal trails. Would that possibly push that ahead faster? Because now for all the reasons that you cite, it's helpful to be on the illegal trails to now have too many people on the, the populated trails with the horses and would that help push those trails to become legal faster I, and, and, in a respectful way. Do you understand what I'm saying? I, I understand that, what you're saying. Um, you're, you're depending on every single rider, uh, slowing down and being nice as they pass everyone else. And we're talking mountain bikers. That is not going to happen. All it's going to do is increase user conflict. It, I think my take on it is it's going to, increase user conflict and the more likely outcome to that is having park rangers go okay we're going to make this trail illegal to cyclists because they're going by too quickly 
Yes, I see what you're saying, of yeah. course. Um, right. So, yeah, I uh, there's a high degree of need for us to mm-hmm. work with park management. Um, yeah. And that's that's true everywhere. Um, it's it's easy to observe that, you know, there's no place in the country where better, more diplomatic advocacy on 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 behalf of cyclists uh, would not be useful. OK, it's it's definitely handy. You know, I've had occasion to speak with the folks uh, at Kingdom Trails. And one of the interesting things uh, that they're doing there is because riders are no longer I believe it's four different parcels of land, if I recall correctly, uh, that cyclists have been ruled out of. Um, and so they're busy. Uh, well, they were not right now. There's a lot of snow. But last summer they were busy cutting new trails for workarounds. Because those parcels were so central to the network, it was creating a situation where there were certain you can't get theirs from here's. Um, and right. so, you know, it's it's a it's a great example of why no matter what trail you're on, it, we really need to be nice and polite. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I that's I think, really important. And to a certain extent, peer pressure can help a lot on that. Absolutely. When you're suggesting like, yeah, if people are going to be passing other people, there is definitely a nice way of doing it. It Mm -hmm. it can be a lot, obviously. And maybe a horseback rider doesn't read you the right way. But when everyone has the right intentions in mind, there's a lot of ways that that can go well every time rather than it having to be, you know, full of conflict or or angst for anyone. Yeah. I. I really honestly think that more horseback riders should be doing more to train their horses to deal with other users. Um, I was in a situation uh, last summer where I was trying to pass some horses. I'd come up behind them. Okay. So Mm -hmm. I did need to get by them, which means that I did need to go faster than them because I wasn't going to go four miles per hour downhill for the rest of my life. And that's how long it was going to take me to get downhill if I was going to stay behind them. Um, and, you know, I got some squawking. Um, it's like, well, you know, what what is the acceptable pace uh, to pass a horse at? And really, if the horse is that skittish, should it be out on public land? Right. For the same reason, somebody with a dog that could bite shouldn't be out there. That horse can toss its owner off or hurt you the person who's trying to pass. So yeah. agreed that that's not a great situation. If that horse isn't going to be able to handle a, a very simple maneuver yeah, where two people are going to run into each other. I mean, yeah. I've got no interest in terrorizing anybody. That's just yeah, that's, really, <laughs> you know, I'm not like that. I, I'm not looking for conflict. No, um, of course not. But you know, I don't, I don't want to have to come to a dead stop every time I see a horse. It's like, really? Um, so you see a lot of horses there. You have quite a few yeah. horseback riders on your trails. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's super common in Annadale. Uh, and because it's so hilly, you know, it's not uncommon to find yourself in a situation where they're going downhill. You're going downhill and you got to get by them at some point, And now what? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there are some longstanding uh, hard feelings on the parts of, you know, some user groups just toward the entire population of the other user group. I get that. You know, we certainly have some bad actors in our community and we need to work on that. But good golly. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's difficult when it's it's gone years and years in the past. And we certainly have areas here where there's been some conflict. It's typically been be- between walkers and hikers mm-hmm. and, and bike riders yeah at least in one particular area that i'm thinking about right now and that's been that's been tough that the cyclists have gotten themselves kicked off of really large number of trails in this one particular area because of the conflict between walkers and mm-hmm. and cyclists and and strava data i believe is what did it in for for the riders <laughs> yeah. yeah and being able to show the speeds that riders were going as they're passing walkers and, and that's and that's interesting like that's data it's it's hard to defend that yep 
yeah, you're going too fast in an area where there are people walking and people who are walking are, are scared for whatever reason, whether they're just wired to dislike cyclists or unfortunately, if someone has given them a reason to be scared of cyclists or to dislike the population, which is unfortunate. Anytime a whole population is disliked by any other whole population. I mean, that runs to that runs through our society in way too many ways. It's, mm-hmm. it's yeah. it, obviously. And that this is a smaller subset of, of that happening. Yeah. There was um, a, yeah. there's a parcel of land near me that it used to be okay to poach uh the the landowner didn't mind the odd cyclist uh cutting through he was aware that you know there was a trail over here and there was a trail over there and you know yeah and then someone showed him strava and he saw uh-huh. how many hundreds of cyclists had been cutting through his property mm. and that was it new fence went up you know signs yeah. uh all that cut off so strava has certainly uh exacerbated some issues in a in a way that's you know really unfortunate um I, i've been surprised in in some of the ways it's been used against us but it's our own damn fault yeah yeah right right there's another area that where our second shop is a, a right it's called ride headquarters in sherburn and sherburn is full of horseback riders and I've been connected with their trail stewards, which they have a really nice organization, uh, mostly mm-hmm. made up of hikers and a few cyclists are part of it. Uh, quite a few horseback riders are part of this organi- organization as well. And their biggest problem is how to get people to use the trails. Huh. And what I love about it is they're trying to figure out how to get more cyclists on the trails, how to get more horseback riders on the trails. And at this point, Horseback riders have tended to move out of the area as houses sell. People who move in generally aren't horseback riders, but the history of the area has been has been horse farms. Mm. So, yes, new new homeowners are not going to be horseback riders. But also new homeowners might not understand the rules. If you have a easement on your property, if someone gets hurt on that property, they can't sue the homeowner. Mm-hmm. So the, the homeowner is protected. A lot of new homeowners don't appreciate that or don't know that. So some trails have gone away because of that, but not too many. And it's it's neat to see an organization that's really positive and trying to get people on the trails and, and really just not seeing much conflict. And a lot of it is just the population. The population is low. It's not it's it's a community of something like 4000 residents. And there's a lot of land. You're, so we rarely run into horseback riders. I've certainly seen horses out there, but not often. So not like, oh, I'm going to have to stop and wait again. I'm not going to have to stop and wait again. Nothing like that. It's it's maybe once every three rides, I'll see a horse on these on these trails. You know, it's just it's just not that densely populated. So I'm hoping that that never gets to the place where the users are in conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. But it is just neat to be on a on a trail system where you feel like you're wanted. It's great you're there and it actually helps clear the trails because the, the trails can get overgrown and with use, it helps helps them exist. Mm. <laughs> so it's it, just a completely different way of, of looking at it. It's, yeah. it's good for everyone to have people out there. <laughs> That's awesome. In this particular case. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. All righty. Well, let's move on to the paceline picks. Uh, oh, what's yours? Oh my goodness. Well, I'll, I'll go quick today. <laughs> uh, I'm talking about bottle cages because especially as we're getting into more gravel riding rough road riding and that sort of thing you want bottle cages that will hold your uh, bottles in place and not eject them at some unknown time and have them leave your bike so king cages Mm. are really nice cages they're just they have a very standard nice looking shape they don't add necessarily to the look of a bike but they certainly don't detract from the look of a bike i can't get them to break i don't see them break ever cheap cheap bottles bottle cages are what five ten dollars i've seen those break all the time these guys are eighteen dollars a cage it's not that much money for something that's going to hold your bottle in in place and and it's and the ones that i just talked about is the stainless steel cages they also make titanium cages so if you have a bike with a third cage or sorry third bottle mount under the down tube where you can mount a cage and a bottle 
I definitely recommend the titanium cage because it's stronger. It will help keep that bottle in. There's one thing to have a bottle hanging upside down with water in it and trying to keep that in your bike is very different than yeah. your bottles are using gravity in order to to stay in your frame. Because, yeah, if you have that third bottle fall out of your bike, it could mean somebody could crash out on that bottle behind you or even you could could go down on it. So it's really important to keep it in there. So that's my thing for today. Get get nice cages for your bike. Yeah. It's really, really nice to have your bottles in your bike and not lose your most favorite <laughs> bottle too. Right. who knows where. Yeah, I'm a big fan of king cages. Uh, I've had those on a fair number of bikes. Yeah, my Danucci has them right now. Yeah, gravel Excellent. bike. <laughs> there you go. Almost all of our bikes at the shop go home with king cages. And, and I, I just, I, I value them very much. Yeah, good stuff. And what do you got for your pick today? So yesterday I did a ride that was both cold and damp. And on my way back into town, it was uh, actually a little wet. It was raining some. Um and I'd be amazed. I, gosh, I just said the word cold. People are going to laugh. Um, <laughs> I'd be amazed if the temperature ever reached 50 degrees. Um, and so for the ride, uh, I was wearing a piece from Sportful that's new to me, the Fiandri Pro Medium Jacket. Uh, it's akin to the Castelli Gabba or Perfetto jackets. Um, it's, sli- it's similar in that it's windproof and water resistant on the front but the back of the jack jacket is uh different from what you would get with like a perfetto in that it's it's cut from a different material uh it's far more breathable it's fleecy um it it's still warm uh but it does a much better job at allowing moisture to evaporate uh you know be transported away from the the body and then evaporate out of that fleecy material um so it the inside of the jacket doesn't turn into a rainforest. Um, it's not a piece that I'd use in a full downpour, but on a damp day, raw day, um, even one where it's kind of drizzling, this jacket is just incredible. Um, it does feature sportsful mm, toy boat. Uh, it does feature sportful's no rain treatment. So even if there is rain falling, it won't immediately penetrate penetrate the jacket. You know, drops will beat up and run off the side. Um, but yeah, I I wouldn't choose this for a total downpour. Uh, so long as I didn't stop for more than a minute or two, I was perfectly comfortable. It's got a reflective logo in back, and the cuffs are cut from neoprene, so they're nice and snug. Um, the sleeves are really long, a little longer than some of the other pieces I've encountered out there. Um, What's really interesting is it's uh, it's got a reasonably high collar, but then there's a second inner liner to the collar that rises even further up the neck uh, to keep cold air from slipping down into the jacket. Uh, like most stuff. That sounds really nice. Yeah. Uh, three pockets in back for plenty of storage. Um, the Fiandre Pro Medium goes for $230. Uh, it comes in four colors uh, and six sizes. I wear the medium, which is the next to smallest, and I'm 160 pounds. So that'll give you some idea of what to look at in terms of sizing. They've got a good sizing guide uh, on their website, and we will have a link in our show notes. Um, all righty. Well, sounds great. Another episode of the Pace Line. Um, everybody, keep questions coming. I actually have one that I almost did this week, but I will be doing next week regarding suspension. But uh, if you've got an idea, please drop by the Cycling Independent and put a suggestion in the comments. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with Patria Vandermark. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line.